It's good to see you this morning. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Psalm 6. Uh, turn to Psalm chapter 6. Um, I want to express my appreciation to uh, all of those who lead and serve uh, in helping us uh, communicate the gospel each week. Uh, some you will see on the platform, um, some you will not. And uh, it doesn't mean that they couldn't be here, it just means that the roles that they play do not require them uh, to be here on the platform. Uh, thank you for your singing and your participation uh, in our time. Uh, been asked several times about uh, along the way and meeting people and talking about Oak Valley. Question comes is, uh, well, do you have a choir? And I said, we sure do. <laughs> and uh, we do. You are the choir. Every week we sing, and I get a chance to hear you sing. And uh, some of you are able to see each other sing. Others of you are not. But we are a choir, and the voices and instruments that God has given us, we intend to use and uh, hold those up and praise Him and bless Him for um, for those who have attended here for some time, and those of you who are members, you know that we are as deliberate in our song selections as we are in our passages of Scripture uh, and all that we do along the way, uh, even in our sermon preparation. Uh, and I hope you sense that because even this morning I was just encouraged by the words that we were singing. And while we want you to sing and engage, we certainly want you to do that. Uh, don't check your don't, don't check your brain uh, out at that time, but pay attention to the words and what we are singing because they were selected specifically for today as it relates to everything that we're hoping to communicate. Uh, and in that, we are looking for words of truth. We're looking for words of confession. Uh, we are looking for words of hope. Um, and as you've already recognized, we every week point to heaven. We point to eternity uh, in our singing because uh, uh, if uh, apart from that, I'm not sure that we will continue to pursue and to move forward if we don't look ahead to heaven as believers. Um, if this is all that we have to look forward to, uh, as good as it may seem at times, I think most of us would agree uh, that the hardship uh, outweighs uh, some of the benefits that we receive, and it gets hard, and life gets hard and messy, and we'll look at that uh, and look at that some today. Today is the second week uh, of our Psalm series in the seven week uh, seven week series. Uh, we began last week in Psalm one. Hope you were encouraged in that. Next week we will be looking at the twenty third Psalm. So uh, just in planning ahead for next week. Uh, uh, if you will just read and meditate on that passage, I think it'll be helpful to you as we come uh, and address it next week. But uh, we selected Psalm 6, and it is the first of seven penitential psalms. Now, what do we mean when we say penitential psalm? Uh, there are seven psalms throughout the course of the 150 psalms uh, where the psalmist, primarily David, uh, confesses his sin and deals with the hardship and struggle of sin in his own life. Um, probably the one that we're most familiar with is Psalm 51, but Psalm 6 is the very first one. And while we do know in some of those psalms the background and the circumstances uh, and even the sin itself, uh, there are those that we don't have that background for, which as I was thinking about it this week, uh, if there's not a specific background given for it, then I would assume that in the course of life it is just an everyday thing that a believer, someone who's trusting in God, is going to struggle with sin. Now, we know that's true for an unbeliever. But for a believer, he or she will struggle uh, with sin. Uh, those psalms that I was referring to, and you may want to read them because we're going to make a comment or two about them, uh, but it will be the only, this is the only one of the penitential psalms that we'll look at in our series, uh, is Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. You may want to, at some point in time, just sit down and read all seven of those and meditate on those things and reflect on it in your own life. But what's interesting in studying these psalms, and we'll see this today in looking at Psalm 6, is the progression that takes place of them. 
David looks at his life, looks at his sin, sees the heaviness of it, the weight of it. It, it affects him. We'll see today it affected him uh, soulfully, it's affected him physically, but it is really heavy on him, real heavy on him. And he speaks of his brokenness and his pain that his sin has caused God, has caused others, and even caused himself. And he seems to call out for mercy, but then he'll go back after he calls out for mercy and he recounts his sins again. And he does that over again in these Psalms where he confesses his sin and you would say, well, that's enough. Just say them one time. And then he cries out for mercy and then he goes back and he begins to deal with the heaviness of sin again. And then through the course of the psalm, all of these psalms, he will recognize the salvation of God as he turns to him. And selecting Psalm 6, I want you to know that it's my hope that we will experience a renewed commitment in our lives. If we're here today and we haven't trusted in Christ, I hope today that you hear in the course of this text that it is God who has the answer for the disorder in your life. It is God who has the answer for you for salvation. It is God who holds forgiveness for you. And if you're here today and you uh, are like me uh, and you are a believer and you're still struggling with sin, uh, it's my hope that it will come out of all of this a renewed commitment uh, to follow Christ and to look uh, ahead to Him. I'm reminded of what uh, Dr. John MacArthur has repeatedly said he said, our salvation isn't determined or based on our perfection, but on our direction. Our salvation is not determined by our perfection, but by our direction. And, and I know, knowing him and knowing his theology, I want to qualify that. Uh, he isn't speaking here and doesn't mean in this statement that he is setting aside or disqualifying the reality of justification. No, he is saying that when God uh, has placed that, you, not only that you haven't sinned, but that you have kept the law when he is looking at you, which is justification. He's seeing you through the lens of Christ. He's not disqualifying that and setting aside. He's not talking about justification there, but he's talking about sanctification. And that's the ongoing work, the, the being made, the becoming ongoing work of being conformed into the likeness of Christ. I think there's something else maybe helpful for us with the Psalms, and you say you're deviating here, and I'm, and I'm not. I want to point you to this fact, is that as we consider the Psalms, we need to remember that they are intended for worship. They are a psalter. They are a hymn book, if you will. Uh, they come together to make this. Uh, they're worship songs, and they're divided into five books. And what's interesting is these five books of the Psalms correspond with the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, what we know is the Law. And, and I'm going to give you the breakdown, and you may already know this if you're familiar with them, but I want to point you to the worship aspect because coming out of not just today, but coming out of these seven weeks, our hope is and our prayer and our goal is that we really do become uh, worshipers of God. That, that, that's, that's what this is about. It is about worshiping Him. So the, the first book concludes in uh, chapter 41 or Psalm 41. I'll give you that. The second book concludes at 72. The third book concludes at 89. The fourth book concludes at 106. And then the fifth book concludes at the end at 150. Now I want to show you, and this is what was interesting as I was preparing for this series, is it's, it was interesting to me that each book closes with a specific doxology. In other words, it's pointing toward worship. So when he gets to the end of the book, uh, there is this, there is this laser-focused statement on the worship of, of God. Let, let's take a look at that for just a minute by turning to chapter 41, which is the, the, the end of the first book, and look at verse 17. Excuse me. Look at verse 11. 
Excuse me, look at verse 13. <laughs> that one's right. <laughs> the doxology at the end of the first book is what? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the statement of worship. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Turn, if you will, uh, to chapter 72, verses 18 and 19. says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now turn to chapter 89, verse 52. The end of the third book, this is the concluding statement, the word of doxology. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Now turn to 106, 48. Psalm 106 and verse 48. The end of the fourth book, word of doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then the psalm itself, the whole book concludes with Psalm 150. And the whole psalm is the doxology uh, for the Psalter. Let's listen to it together. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And it concludes praise uh, the Lord. Now, why take the time to consider these? Well, here's at least why I think, and I have thought on this for a good while, because the psalmist is never shy in speaking of the complexities of life in this sinful world. We were talking about it earlier this week in a discussion that we were having about the psalm. And if you'll read the psalms, we have psalms of praise, but there is embedded in the psalm more content about struggles and hardship and suffering and enemies. There's more content there in that than there is toward praise to God just throughout the whole psalm. Why? Well, life is just complex. It's complex in this sinful world. Sin is complicated. And sin brings complications in our life. Uh, there is a disorientation in the course of life because of sin. There's disorder in the universe. This disorder was brought on in creation when Adam sinned. And all of us have been dealing with this, this, this disorder. But just as the psalmist is not shy in speaking of the disorder in the world, he's also not shy in constantly pointing us to the source of absolute harmony and peace. He's always pointing us there. He points us to the Lord God. So no matter what we're hearing in the psalm, we're always being pointed to God. And then at the end of these books, we are reminded again, praise Him, look to Him. He is everlasting. And as we look to the Lord God, here's what we find. We find that there may be in this life and will be for the most part of us, moments of temporary reprieve from the disorder brought on by sin. But what is more, and this is what's evident, is this, and I want you to get a hold of this. It's important. We're going to hear it today. But what is more than that, he acknowledges along the way, 
He has absolute trust and hope in the Lord and the eternal reprieve from the disorder brought on by sin. That's the reason that we sing of heaven, the reason that we point to heaven. There will be temporary moments of reprieve here, but when we get to heaven, for those who trusted Christ, when we get there, there will be a permanent reprieve. It will be ended. All of the disorder will be ended. And the psalmist constantly points us to that. And we'll see this particularly next week when we look at the 23rd Psalm. For those of you who are familiar with it, you will remember the last words of that psalm. Here's what the psalmist says. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, he is looking ahead to the eternal reprieve. Now this has come after sermon prep. I was driving over this morning and the thought came to mind and I was thinking about this in regards to myself but in regards to you in regards to some people that I had prayed would be here today. People that we have been ministering to over the course of the weeks that I know about their challenges and their struggles and I know the pain they're feeling in life. And giving consideration of that. And, and this is what came to mind. Uh, I, I wonder how we feel and how we think about coming into the presence of God today. In other words, in, in other words, what do we think that He thinks about us? How does He look at us? And as I was mulling over this, I, I, I thought I, there's probably at least three ways we may give consideration to that for ourselves individually. One, I think our culture would have us believe, as it has taught us and continues to teach us, our culture teaches us that everything should be good in life. And yet we run headlong into the fact that it is not always good. But our culture tells us that it should be good. And then with that, as we come into the presence of God, in a culture that most often does not even consider God, the culture would at least inform us in this way that we should be able to move into the presence of God in any way that we are and in any condition that we are and that God ought to be happy about that and pleased. In other words, it should boost his ego. It should help him feel good about himself that we would come into his presence. And I believe that there are people who assemble, and I don't, prayerfully, hopefully, that is not the case with us here today. But there are people that are assembled in the presence in some kind of a worship setting today that feel real good about being in the presence of God in any way that they are, even in the midst of their brokenness, because they feel like it boosts God's ego and it helps him out. But there's another way. We might come here today feeling really, really down on ourselves. In other words, we feel the heaviness of our sin, and we know that we are wretched, and we move into the presence of God feeling as though He will not receive us, and that He is not pleased about us coming into His presence. We will see glimpses of that even today as we move into this psalm because there is this initial understanding, I have no place to stand before you. And that is a good thing. But we also must remember who God is. And that comes to the third place is we come and we move into his presence in the way that we are, wretched as we are, but remembering who he is. Remembering who he is and what he is about. With that, let's read Psalm 6 and let's just walk through it. This is a psalm of David, meaning David is the author of the psalm. Let's hear it together. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul 
also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to understand the very essence of this word from David. Knowing, Father, that we can identify with him and where he is. But more importantly, God, today, help us to be able to identify with him in the receiving of your grace and in the declaration of the salvation that comes in and through you and cause that to prop us up and sustain us and build us up. And then, Father, for those who are here who have not yet trusted you, cause them to see the glory in Christ and your saving work in him that we have already heard about and that we have sung about. Father, would you cause that to just overwhelm their mind and their hearts today to where they will in their brokenness cry out for you to heal them and to save them as we know you can do in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Why begin there? Rebuke me not, nor discipline me in your wrath. There is a persistent condition It's a perplexing reality, but a reality nonetheless. Even the Christian remains a sinner. Hear that. Even the Christian remains a sinner. We're very much sinners. We know that. David's life reflected the fact that even the one who is by God himself characterized as a man after God's own heart, he is a sinner, and at every turn in the course of his life, he sees this, he recognizes it, he experiences it, and that is the reason that over the course of 150 worship songs, at least seven of those are dedicated wholly to him confessing his sin in moments of grief whenever he is down and downcast because of his sin and feeling the heaviness and the weight of it, it's just pointing to the fact that here is a man who is seeking to worship God, longs to worship God, leads in worship, and yet is overcome, at least momentarily, by his sin. It is a perplexing thing. Uh, I was thinking about that this week, but there's no consolation in that. I don't feel better because David, a man after God's own heart, was a sinner. I don't feel better about me in looking at that. I'm just reminded that it is a perplexing thing because we would think, as we looked just a few weeks ago in 1 Peter, that that should be very different and should not even be a characteristic, so to speak, of our life. Because as we trust in him, as Peter said, we are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now think about that again. A chosen race, chosen by God. So we would assume by that that we are sinless, a holy nation, someone that reflects the holiness of God, a royal priesthood. 
In other words, a people who are priests for everyone else and intercede on behalf of everyone else. And we would look at our lives over against the high priest that Booney pointed us to again earlier as he prayed. And that would be that there would be perfection. And yet we look at our lives and we know that it's not. And a people for God's own possession, what would we think? Well, God deserves perfection. He deserves the very best. He has called. He has called on us for that. And yet that's not what we see in our lives. We find ourselves not looking so much like that. How about your life? Do you look like that? Does holiness mark your life? Perfection mark your life? And for those of you who have not trusted Christ, I don't want you to find consolation in this either. You may hold out and say, well, at least I don't profess Christ. So somehow or another, I'm one up on the person who professes Christ and yet lives lives like they're not of Christ. Well, no, you're not any better off. In fact, you're worse off. Better to be a believer and saved and held by the grace of God as David was and sinned than to somehow or another try to find a position above that as if, if I don't profess, then I'm not as bad. No, sin, sin grips us all. There is no high road when it comes to sin. There's no high road. So that's the one thing that we see. We recognize that David says, Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He understands that he deserves that. What he's doing, he's crying out for mercy here. He's just simply saying, I deserve to be rebuked by you. I deserve to be dealt with you in a harsh, just, righteous way, which is the only way that you would deal with me in your wrath would be hard and just and righteous. But he's saying, God, please don't discipline me that way. Don't destroy me. Please, he says in verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord. Be gracious to me, O Lord. There's something else we see in this text, and we're going to track through this. But uh, there is, uh, in the course of this persistent condition, there's a grievous and painful course. It is a grievous and painful course. Just track along and see what happens here. And we'll not deal with this in a lot of detail, but just look at it. Be gracious to me, O Lord. He says, I am languishing. In other words, I am am wasting away. Now, he hasn't identified his sin, but we know that there are at least two things going on, and probably both are happening at the same time. Is number one, he's struggling with his own sin, and he is being sinned against. He's being sinned against. He has enemies that are sinning against him, and he is sinning. And even in the course of that, he would acknowledge the fact that even his response to his enemies are not as it should be. So there again, that is sin. Did you get that? There's no justification for us lashing out against the person who offends us. That's the point. That in and of itself is sin. So he's sinning. He's not responding well to those who are sinning against him. And they're sinning against him. And he has all of this disorder, all of this disorientation, if you will, that's taking place in his life. And here's how it has affected him. And these are not poetic words. We know that the Psalms are poetry. But this is, this is not an over-exaggeration for him. He says, I am languishing. In other words, it is eating me alive, even to the point that it has affected him physically. He says, heal me, O Lord. Why? For my bones are troubled. In other words, this is so heavy upon me that it has affected me physically and is affecting me physically. And then if that's not enough, notice where he goes to. He says, my soul is also greatly troubled. And what is his response to this? Well, look down in verse 6. 
All of this has impacted him. And then he comes and says, to the degree that I am weary with my moaning, every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. My heart's broken for him already. That in his sin and in his troubles and struggles, that it has affected him. That sin has affected him at the very core of who he is until he is just wasting away, grieving over his sin. The thing that separates the believer and the unbeliever is the unbeliever sins and saying it has no sense of conscience because our consciences can be educated to what is right and what is wrong. And we know this is true because if we go to Romans chapter 2, we find that whenever Paul is writing there, he makes, uh, makes a point to help the, the Jews understand that the Gentiles have a law in them and are living out of that law. You had it written, they have it in them, and they're living it out when they've never had it. In other words, that their conscience by the grace of God, their conscience have been educated toward that which is right and wrong. So I'm not saying that all sinners just, even those who are lost, just sin and, and think nothing about it. Here's what we know about the believer. When the Spirit of God rests in the believer, when there is sin, there is a heaviness of heart regarding those things. And David's was incredibly heavy. A man who was seeking God, a man after God's own heart, with sin in his life, and he's struggling, and he says, I'm languishing away. I hurt at the very core of my bones. It's affecting me physically. My soul is troubled, and I weep night after night after night after night. Sin is grievous and painful, and it is a grievous and painful course. It was painful to his mind, painful to his body and painful to his soul as it should be with us as well. But notice what else he does. He asks for mercy. He asks for grace. And then he says this, look in verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled but you, O Lord, and then what is the next two words? How long? How long? We run into that phrase in Scripture over and over again, and I won't recount them, but, but God asks the people, how long are you going to remain in your sin? How long are you going to continue to disobey me? How long will it be before you turn to me? How long will it be before you listen? And then the sinner, on the other hand, looks at his or her life, and we want to know how long. And not even just in regards to sin, although our lives are impacted and affected, but how long, how long will it be before deliverance comes? How long will it be before healing comes? How long will it be before I'm out of my suffering and struggle? How long will it be before death comes? I had a friend of mine back here some years ago, went on a fishing trip, it was on a Sunday too, by the way, and I don't and 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 I'm not saying that this happened because he was fishing on Sunday. I just it would just happen to be on a Sunday. He left out with two other men and they went out on a fishing trip. Uh, and they were 25, 35, 30 miles offshore. And when they stopped and they started fishing, and it wasn't but just a few minutes. Uh, he was it was on a brand new boat. It was not his boat. It was one of the one of the one of his friends' boats, and they were on the boat. And it wasn't too long. He noticed that there was water around his ankles, and he got concerned. Well, the man had gone and purchased a brand new boat, had not put the plugs in, didn't didn't wasn't an issue. When they backed it off the ramp, they got it up on the water, and like most folks do, whenever they're going out in the ocean. Uh, they're running on top of the water, so it's bailing out. There's not an issue. But when they stopped and started fishing, he noticed there was water around his ankles. And within less than a minute, the boat was completely capsized. Uh, one grabbed a hold of an anchor ball. Another one grabbed a hold of a cooler. And two of them held on to the cooler. And one held on to the anchor ball. And the, 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 the constant 
question that kept coming is how long will it be before someone comes? My friend, seasoned in fishing and knowing how things work, just said they will not be here. And this happened early on a Sunday morning. They said, uh, no one's going to know that we're gone until I don't show back up at home after dark. Then the Coast Guard will be notified, and it will be sometime tomorrow. But we don't know when. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Holding on to an anchor ball, middle of the ocean, holding on to a cooler. How long is it going to be before help arrives? How long will it be? Well, we ask that question over and over again. How long? By the way, they were all three saved. Help did come almost dark on Monday evening. Uh, they were saved. Joe Ganey, y'all know him. Um, it did come. But can you imagine the length of time, minute after minute, wondering how long will it be? How long will it be? Well, the psalmist asked that, how long? How long? Uh, our uh, assurance of pardon pointed us to that our suffering is but for a while. Our hardship is but for a while because we're looking ahead to eternity. But he said, how long? And then in verse 4, notice what, what happens here. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. In other words, deliver me, save me. This sin has me in peril. And you are my only hope. And here's what he does. He says, save me for two reasons. Okay? And let's look at what his two reasons are. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now I want you to push pause there for just a minute because here's what's being built in the course of this song. Eight times in these ten verses, the psalmist specifically uses the covenant name of God. Yahweh. Eight times in these ten verses. Notice verse 1, O Lord. Verse 2, O Lord. Verse 2 again, O Lord. Verse 3, O Lord. Verse 4, O Lord. Verse 8, for the Lord. Verse 9, the Lord. Latter part of verse 9, the Lord. He is rehearsing the covenant name of God and it is that covenant love that he is appealing to and he's saying, because of who you are, save me. Because you are the covenant God, save me. Now, just remember just a moment that this is David. God had established a covenant with him as well. But this is David that is writing this, and he is appealing back to the Lord who had made himself known to Abraham, but most specifically, and remember it hadn't been too long ago, we were in Exodus, made himself known to Moses and to the people of Israel in their deliverance that I am Yahweh. I am. I am the covenant God. David is appealing to that, and he is rehearsing God's name over and over again. You hear us rehearsing God's name often here. And we will point to, particularly Booney, will always point us back to this is the triune God. This is the Lord. Why? Because in knowing him, we appeal to his name and what that means and what that says about him. And that's what's being done here. And he says, oh Lord, deliver me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. In other words, save me because you are a loving God and your love is steadfast and eternal. But then he gives another reason. Look in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And we're not going to unpack Sheol today. We don't have time. But, but just... Just listen to the point that is being made. 
David understands here, as we should understand, that our life here on earth is given to bringing honor and glory to God. That's why we exist, to praise Him, to glorify Him. David was looking at his life and saying, this is what you have created me to do, and if, back up in verse 1, if you rebuke me in your anger and you discipline me in your wrath, then that means that that will be the end of me here on this earth and I will not be able to praise you as I should any longer. Because there is no praise of you in death and in Sheol, not in the way that you have intended for me as your creature, created in your image, to praise you. He's putting great value on his life in an unselfish way, understanding that his life was intended to bring honor and glory and praise to God. Now think about that in regards to our own lives. So why would we wantonly just bypass God and live as though our life here doesn't make any difference It's the attitude that people have. I'll live the way that I want to live here. It doesn't matter because I have God and I'm saved and I'm going to be okay in eternity. So it doesn't matter what I do here. And David is countering that and saying, no, absolutely not. That is not true. It does matter what I do here. In other words, if you take me out, I won't be able to praise you anymore. And you have made me to praise you. Are you connecting the dots now? The doxology at the end of each of the five books? What does the psalmist do at each point in time? He praises God because that's what he's been created to do. And David is saying, save me. Save me because of who you are. And save me that I may worship and praise you. Look in verse 6. We saw that. In this depressed state, I'm weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Remember I said that there is this progression where he speaks about his sin, he asks for mercy, he revisits his sin and his struggles and his hardship. And you would think, okay, what is going to come next? And there is this abrupt change that takes place. We have no notice for it. What's the very next thing that we hear in verse 8? Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. It's just this abrupt change comes over him. Why? I believe at least in part because he is rehearsing the name of God over again. He's rehearsing the name of the Lord. He is revisiting who the Lord is. That's where we find hope. For the believer... Being reminded of who he is is where we find hope. Are there times of doubt? Sure there is. How do we overcome that? Well, we do as David did. We get before him and we pray and we point back to, this is what I know about you. That's what we do here every week. This is what we know about you, God. I come in here, I'm not feeling it, but this is what I know about you. I come in here and I'm down. This is what I know about you. I come in here and I've struggled with sin, but this is what I know about you. This is what I know about you. And that's what David does in this psalm. He says, this is what I know about you. And then it's like uh, coming out of that, coming out of that, there is this turn. And he said, I want to be done with and away from everything that is evil. And then he says these three things. Look at it again. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. 
Hopefully you picked up this morning when we were looking back in 1 Peter, cast all your cares on him, cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you, and he does. He does. I jotted this down whenever I was reading this, pointing back to the covenant name of God. This is what, this is what, this is what David was beginning to understand, and it is what God was communicating in his name. And it's a, it's, it's a little bit different than we hear it, but this is what he, what, he, what he meant in his name. When God said, I am to Moses, and every time we speak his name, the Lord, he, we are hearing, I am. We are saying, God, you are. You are. God was saying, David, I'm not new. I'm not new. I didn't just arrive. I have been here all along. I am. I'm not absent. And, and I want you to hear today with whatever it is that you're struggling with. Whether you're dealing with sin, whether you're dealing with emotional issues, if you are dealing with loneliness, if you are struggling physically, if you're struggling uh, financially, whatever it is, just know that God is not absent. I am. He says, I am not absent. I'm present. And then he says, I am. I have been. I will be. I'm here. I'm coming. I am. I have been. I will be. I'm coming. What do we mean when we say he's coming? Wherever it is that we need to be rescued, the Lord is coming. When? How long? Doesn't matter. That's not the issue. I'm coming. I'm coming. And what, isn't that exactly what Christ was telling his disciples when they're wanting to know when he's going to return? And it is not about knowing when he's going to return. It is simply what? He's coming. And that's the reason when we get to the end of Revelation, what, it is it that, what is it that, that John says? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. But there is this assurance that he is going to return. And look at what happens here. The Lord isn't unaware of David's suffering. He isn't removed from David's pain, and he's not removed from ours. And he isn't absent from the moment, but he is constantly there, constantly here, constantly with us. He heard the plea, and he heard the prayer, and accepted it. Look at verse 10. And I think it's important for us to grasp this. David said, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Why close with that? Why end this psalm where he comes out with all of this hope and that God has heard him, why close with that? Even part, he is pointing to the fact that there is a judgment that is coming. And God will deal rightly with all of those in sin. And David knows that. And God has dealt with him uh, in grace. How does that help us today? How does that help you today? Be reminded that there is a deliverance in a loving and compassionate God. So some of you I know, some of you I don't. Some of you know me and some of you don't. We're not hundreds of people here today and we're not thousands, but there are hundreds of needs right here within the context of this small group. There are those that you are aware of 
And there are those that you will be made aware of. And some soon. For sure. Why? It's just the way life is. There's disorder and disorientation in the course of this life. How are we going to navigate through that? I'm encouraging you today, and I've been encouraged, to consider this God who is compassionate and loving and just. Don't cover up over your need for Him, whether that be in sin or you sin in the course of not trusting in Him with whatever it is that's going on in your life, but rather just go to Him and cry out in mercy And as David, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, but be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. Those were the words of one who was after God's own heart. And if that is true of him, then I would say today that every one of us in here today could find our place to honestly say, Be gracious to me, O God, and deliver me and save me. If you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, cry out to him in that manner. Because your life is just that serious. Your life is that important. And for those here who trust Christ, be reminded that it is a perplexing thing that we are not yet made perfect but we are being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, we need Him. We need Him in every turn in our life. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You for helping us by giving us Your Word, by imparting Your Spirit to speak that Word to our hearts, Father, would you take it and and push it in to the very crevices of our hearts and our minds, causing us to hold on to it, causing it to be embedded in us, causing us, Father, to take hope and courage in your word because it is living and active, causing us most of all to take courage and hope in you, in the work that you have done in Christ. Thank you, Father, that you have given him the one who was perfect, sinless in every way, tempted in every way, and kept your word, sought to obey and trust you, and did so and then died for us. Father, help us to grab that. Not just claim it because it's something that helps us, but claim it because it brings us to you, to where we can, in this life and in eternity, worship and praise you, the only true God. In Christ's name we pray.